Welcome to the Nicholas Natalie Show. Today on the podcast, Dr. Reggie Thomas. He's ran 35 marathons, including the Boston Marathon, eight times. I don't know if you guys know this, but you have to actually qualify for the Boston Marathon, and it the times are pretty fast, like insanely fast. He's ran six ultra marathons and has ran in over 100 official races. He has his doctorate in organizational development and leadership, having done his dissertation on emotional intelligence. So, sir, if you're listening to this, please don't tell them that I'm not smart. Because I don't want anyone to find that out. He was an associate professor of leadership at Golden Gate Seminary for over seven years. He currently serves as an organization and leadership development specialist and is the executive pastor at Chino Valley Community Church. Nick and him chatted about practical actions we can take to help resolve the racial tension that's currently going on in our country. And guys, it is 4th of July weekend. We live in one of the best countries in the United States. July 4th, 1776. Let that sink in. I hope y'all have an amazing weekend. This week's riddle, how does the barber cut the moon's hair? This is a, this is a good one and I'm very proud of it. So I'll reveal it at the end of the podcast. Tune in. As always, head on over over to nicholasnatalie.com forward slash shop. There's new Burb Life polos. Yes, that is right. You heard me. Head on over to youtube.com forward slash nicholasnatalie for new videos every Monday. Also, leave a five-star review and become the reviewer of the week. We're trying to get to 100 five-star reviews fast. I'm going to try and get us a new review for this because we haven't had a new one in like eight weeks. So, please leave a review. And also we did get a five-star reviewer this week. Wait till you hear their name. This episode is sponsored by Little Webby LLC at littlewebby.com. Creates the best darn custom software, websites, and mobile applications. Follow them on Instagram at Little Webby LLC. DM them, say we sent you for a free 30-minute consultation. The reviewer of the week is Look in the show notes if you want to see how that's spelled. Thank you. As always, I'm the intern. You're the listener. This is Nick. Hello and welcome. This is the Nicholas Natale Show. I am your host, Nicholas Natale. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Thomas. Season's greetings. Hey, how's it going, my man? I'm doing pretty well. No complaints. I mean, eh, state of the world is in, in a little bit of a flex, but I'm all right. Well, you are scraping the bottom of the barrel to ask me to be on a podcast with you. No, absolutely not. I <laughs> I was excited that you said yes. I mean, your uh, would reputation be the right word? Your reputation and acclimates precede you. I feel like you're the perfect person to have on. So take well, it for what it is. Great, great being with you. It's great being with you. So let's dive into it. Here's what I know. I knew I know you grew up in the South, I believe Tennessee. Right. And I and your father also grew up in that area, but your father grew up in the pre-civil rights time. And I'm curious how it was watching your father and your your family as a whole in during that time and how interactions were in regards to race and then how you growing up and in your time and how all of that came together, just all of it. All right. So I'm going to uh, reveal my age. Uh, well, I was actually <laughs> born, Nick, in 1963. And, uh, and, and of course, if you're familiar with history, you know that in 1964, that was the year that the Civil Rights Act was passed. 
Uh, you also know that uh, being in the South, especially being in the rural South, uh, obviously there was a lot of racial tension. Um, so I actually grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And even though the, the Civil Rights Act had been passed, that's legislation. Legislation only creates laws uh, to protect you know, minorities, but it doesn't change the human heart. And so you know, there's there's overt there's overt racism and there's covert racism, and so obviously, you know, with the civil rights laws, you can no longer do or participate in overt acts of racism, but it, it was still in people's hearts. People still had ways of expressing it in subtle ways, and without really, you know, giving examples, I can give you some categories. Um, I remember uh, going to school. Uh, in the first grade, I remember being called the N-word, you know, throughout elementary school. Um, I remember being called Blackie. I remember being called Darkie. Um, I remember partiality in playing sports. Uh, my dad always told me that in order to uh, succeed in sports, um, you couldn't just be as good. Uh, you had to be better. And so uh, I experienced that in in athletics there were places that, you know, as a black person, we could not go. Uh, also, the interracial dating was off limits. And so uh, it was very tense, very tense growing up in the in the 60s and the 70s in the South. Could you feel it? Like as a, as a child, were you as aware of these things or did you almost feel like this is the way life is? You know, like this is just how things are and this is how I'm supposed to live? You know, Nick, that's a great question, a very interesting question. You know, over the last several weeks, I have had um, multiple conversations about racism, very productive conversations. And uh, one of the things that I have been sharing with people is, is that it seemed normal. And uh, I think I was naive, I was blinded to it. And I think that was a positive thing. Uh, one of the things that I think I'm really grateful for is the fact that while I was living there and while I was in it, um, I was naive. I think if I had not been naive, I would have grown bitter. I probably would have had a lot of hatred in my heart, uh, probably would not have had the relationships that I uh, was able to develop. And so I think I was blinded to it. But as the years rolled by, the blinders came off my eyes. Um, I was able to see racism in retrospect. I was also able to be, uh, was also able then to recognize it uh, in its current form and fashion. Um, but I think as the years went by, uh, even though I was more aware of racism, I was more mature. I was older. I had uh, lived more life. And so I was able to handle um the reality of it. But I think if I had not had blinders on, if I had not been naive, I probably would be a different person today. So it just seemed normal. It just seemed normal. I will give you one example. Um, if you've been following me on Facebook, you know, I've been doing videos on racism, which is probably how you connected with me. And um, I can't remember, it might've been the third video that I did on racism. Mm -hmm. I gave some il illustrations and one of which was uh, in the town that I grew up in, in Tennessee, there was one swimming complex. Black people were not allowed to 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 go there. And uh, so on top of the hill was, was the Little League baseball field where I played baseball growing up. And then below the hill was this swimming complex. And uh, uh, we were not allowed to even go on the premises of the swimming complex. 
And so, you know, that's one illustration, but it just seemed normal. I mean, we thought nothing of it. The black kids, we thought nothing of it. It's just, it was just a reality. And, uh, and so, so I think we just kind of saw it as being normal. How did your parents handle it during that time? Because I can only imagine how tough it would be to be raising a son in an environment that is limiting opportunities and how frustrating that would be just just as a parent. So, and I, I wonder if like, because I also imagine this, there's a scenario where if one of your parents is receiving some sort of racist remark or encounter, there's probably so much frustration in those moments, but still this like need for strength of character because you don't want your child to grow up with like, as you're saying, bitterness toward people. What, what type of reactions and responses did you learn that, that were the most beneficial from your parents? So, you know, my father was born in 1926. So, you know, he remembers, you know, the, the Jim Crow stuff. Uh, he was pre-Civil Rights uh, Act and legislation. Um, he, he told a story. Now, I never heard a lot of, uh, from my mother. Uh, my mother was a little bit more quiet. But my dad often told us stories about some of his experiences, uh, sitting on the back of the bus, uh, sitting in the black section in uh, movie theaters and other public places, um, having to enter buildings at the rear of the building versus the main entry, uh, drinking from separate water fountains, uh, having places that you were actually off limits, you could not go, you were not permitted to go. So my father often uh, talked about his experience. Uh, my dad had a hard time with racism. So there were a couple of things that I gleaned from my father, one negative and one positive. Um, my dad taught us, and I was raised with two younger brothers, my dad taught us don't trust white people. Now, I'm using the term white people because where I grew up, I mean, being here in Southern California, there is a multiplicity of, uh, of races and ethnicities. I mean, hundreds. Where I grew up, Nick, it was only black and white. Okay? So mm -hmm. we didn't have the, 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 the variety, the, the diversity, diversity here yeah. in Southern California. So it was just black and white. So my dad taught us, you know, don't trust white people. So... Um, he ingrained that in us, but it didn't really stick. It just didn't sound right to me. But I think the positive thing that he taught us was, uh, don't be a victim. And he said, uh, racism don't, doesn't define you. Um, he said that, uh, um, you're going to be limited on opportunities, but he said, uh, prepare yourself, uh, do everything you can to be able to compete in the world. And so, you know, that's why I integrated. That's why I chose to have friends both in the black community and in the white community. That's why I was a part of sports. That's why I was a part of the, the social infrastructure growing up. I wanted to integrate. And uh, also that motivated me to do my best in school, uh, to go get a degree. And uh, I not only have a bachelor's degree, but I went on and got a master's and a doctorate degree. So um, I think, uh, I think when you see yourself as a victim, 
um, it, it's not white people that hold back black people. You hold yourself back. And so you have to prepare yourself. You have to educate yourself. You have to set life goals. And so if there was anything that came out of my father's influence, now, granted, uh, he, he had bitterness and he had a little bit of hatred and in his heart. Uh, and a lot of it was just his experience. I don't fault him for that. Um, he just didn't trust white people and he taught us to do that. But, um, but in a sense, I saw that as being a, a victim or playing the victim card. So, uh, my brothers and I, we all decided that we were going to integrate and to do our best to be able to not just survive in the world, but to, to thrive and to be successful and to be influential. One of my friends recently said to me, and I'm so happy you brought this up because I've been I've been wanting to cover the victim mentality for a while that uh, it was something along the lines of like, if you can convince someone that there's no escaping their circumstances, that's the worst thing you can do for them. Right. Like if they believe that they can never escape it, it's, it's game over. So what would you say, how would you know if someone is like, if I'm doing self-reflection of, like, how would I know if I'm taking on a victim mentality and what would you say to refute it is the best word I can think of? How mm -hmm. do I how do I ensure that I am not allowing outside circumstances to take advantage of me? OK, that's a great question. Uh, Nick, I think there are two things. Number one, uh, I think whenever you hear people wallow in their experiences and, you know, you and I could take this entire podcast and uh, I don't know how long we're going to do this, probably an hour at least. At least. I could, I could probably take the entire podcast and give you story after story after story as to how I experienced racial injustice and racial bigotry. Um but I'm not going to do that. And I've never done that. And I will never do that. I mean, I will tell a story like I did a few moments ago, just to illustrate some of what I experienced. But whenever you hear someone wallow in their experience and that seems to consume their thoughts and their conversations, that's taken on the victim mentality. Uh, whenever you see someone who is not aspiring to goals uh, because they feel like that no matter what they do, no matter what they achieve, they're not going to have the opportunity. Um, one example is I was told, uh, you, why go to college? I mean, no one is going to hold you down uh, in terms of getting a degree. They have to, if you make the grades in high school and you do well on the ACT or the SAT, I mean, you because legally you have to, you can't discriminate, you're going to get into college. But beyond that, you're going to have a degree for absolutely nothing. I heard that. Why, as a black man, why do you want to go to college? Because once you graduate, you're going to have all these student loans, all this debt, and no one's going to hire you. No one's going to give you the opportunity. Uh, some people give in to that kind of mindset. And so uh, I have a number of friends that did not aspire because they they bought into that, that, that mindset that no matter what they do, uh, they weren't going to have the opportunity. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. And uh, I didn't allow it to define my life. And and uh, I didn't allow that to give my life any sense of direction. So that's how you can tell uh, by the way they talk and then by the way they allow their lives to be navigated.
Does that make sense, Nick? That does make sense. Yeah. I I might sidebar here for a little bit because the more research I've done on you and the more I'm hearing about your personality, you're extremely it almost seems intrinsically motivated. Like you had this will, something in your what do they call a fire in your belly that you wanted to succeed and do big things. Where do you think that stems from? Because I do think, I think there is some line of not allowing victim mentality to come across, like come onto you and make excuses for yourselves and things like that. But I think there's a whole nother level of like being internally motivated. If, if we're willing to sidebar for a minute. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, if you look at my Myers-Briggs profile, I am an ESTJ, okay? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm extroverted. I get energy being around people. Uh, I'm very tangible, so I'm sensing. Uh, I'm a thinker, but I'm also a very strong J, very structured. Uh, and then on the strengths finder, uh, I am uh, one, of my, one of my strengths is I'm achiever and a maximizer. Uh, I'm highly competitive, uh, highly competitive. I was very competitive in athletics. Uh, I run marathons now, and I do that very competitively. Uh, I've always had this mentality that I have to be the best, and that that can work for you, and it can work against you. Uh, it can have the right motivation, or it can be driven by the wrong motivation. Uh, and I have to say that over my lifetime, uh, it's been both. You know, there are times where my motivation, it's been uh, positive and there have been times when I've had the wrong motivation. Uh, But where it really came from, Nick, one of the things that was characteristic of my father is my father was a very hard man. Um, He didn't give you accolades. He didn't give you affirmation. He was the kind of guy who just simply said, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you you do it. Uh, Never heard my dad say, I love you. I mean, he was a hard man. He was a driver. And so as a kid, uh, what was ingrained in me is I had this desire to please my father. And I knew that in order to please my father, uh, I had to be the best because he wasn't going to settle for, you know, an A minus. I had to be A plus in everything I did. And so that seems to, that tends to condition you. That's not just, okay, when you grow up and uh, get out from under the authority of your father, you're just going to go back to being who you probably should have been, or you, you're going to go back to being just mediocre. Uh, you're going to go back to settling for being a B plus person in life. knowing that's not the way it works. Uh, when you're raised that way, you are conditioned for life. And so that's where that drive came from. That drive came from my father. When you accepted Christ, let me, let me, let me give some pretext to some of my personal experiences to you. My father was almost he was opposite in a sense. He wasn't as present to say those things. So I, I never had like a, like I never had a reason to earn, like try to earn love or anything like that. So there's some, some mix in there, but, oh man, I'm losing my train of thought here. I had a point and I lost it. That's what I like about you. You're organic on these things. I love that. Yeah. I try to be. I try to be. Um, yeah. Oh, there. there's my thought. I found it. Thank you for allowing me to find it. Um, so when I think of my internal intrinsic motivation, 
I was always trying to find the line in question. Am I trying to overachieve to earn my absence, my absent father's love? Like if I do enough, maybe he'll have some presence in my life or X, Y, and Z. But then once I had a relationship with Christ, there's the whole grace aspect. So now my highly motivated desire to achieve is met with this but I, sh- I will show I'll show you grace you know from God and I wonder if you ever were trying to find the the line of like how do you tow it well I I accepted Christ as a as a as a young teenager Nick and uh, I have to say that my relationship with with Christ I think has regulated that natural instinct in me uh, you know, it's still there, but I think I find I think I find my definition and my identity in Christ. Uh, you know, some of that drivenness is still there, that drive is still there, but I think it's uh, I think it's balanced and, and regulated from the standpoint of it's Jesus that I have to please and not impress my father who is now passed away. But you know, when you're conditioned the way I was growing up. Uh, you tend to see your father in everybody else's faces, okay? Even though my dad is no longer in my life, I mean he's been he's been passed away now for 21 years. Um, the fact that you're conditioned that way, you know, you see his face, you know, in your own boss, you see his face in your spouse, you see his face in the people you work with. That drive to impress and to uh, uh, for, uh, get people's affirmation and approval. It's still there, but I think uh, the fact that I'm in Christ. I mean, and, and it's incredible when you read the Bible. Uh, when you when you talk about those scriptures that deal with who we are in Christ. I mean, we've been redeemed. We're children of God. We're royalty. Uh, we're loved by God. We're accepted by God. I mean, man, there's just a there's a hundred hundreds and hundreds of passages of scripture that just define who we are in Christ. And so we have to focus on that. I agree. Wonderful sidebar going back to the main route with the main, main topic here. You covered this in one of your videos on Facebook and I thought it was, uh, it was really valuable. And my question to you is you mentioned that racism could stem or does stem from ignorance. Do you believe that's the root cause or do you think it's a collection of things? And if so, what is it? What are the collections? Where, what is the core of racism? Well, you and I, I think, have more of a theological perspective on it. And I mean, the core, the root, Nick, obviously is sin. It's part of the, it's part of the sin nature. It's a part of living in a, a fallen world, a broken world. I think from a theological perspective, I mean, it's definitely sin. It's a sin issue. Uh, but as far as other root causes, um, I think it's what it's taught and it's what it's caught. I don't think anybody's born a racist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know in the South, uh, it's interesting to have conversation. In fact, I was talking to one of my buddies the other day from Tennessee. He and I played on the baseball team together uh, growing up, Little League and Babe Ruth baseball, high school baseball. He was always the leadoff hitter, and I was always the 
the the number two hitter. I mean, we were just great. We were like brothers. And uh, he was telling me the other day, uh, he called me and he said, man, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your videos. And man, I really appreciate what you what you've been sharing. It's given a lot of good perspective. And he was sharing with me how growing up, he and I were like brothers, best friends. And uh, I never knew this, but he actually shared with me that uh, a lot of people said to him, man, why are you hanging out with those black guys? Okay. Mm. So now obviously it didn't impact him negatively. He thought it was stupid. He thought it was crazy. He knew that it wasn't right. But some of the people that I grew up with, they were taught that by their parents, by their grandparents. So I think a part of it is taught. And you understand the nature of education. You learn from the people that you most respect, whether they're teaching something erroneous or, or correct. They're going to, it's going to hold. But also it's caught. In other words, your parents can say all day long that they're not racist, but how do they manage their lives? And I've had a lot of my white friends from Tennessee tell me that their parents, they never heard their parents make a racist comment in the home, but it was the way they lived their lives. Uh, for example, um, I had one friend tell me that the first time that he asked his parents if he could uh, bring a, a black friend home, uh, parents, they said, maybe you shouldn't do that. Okay. Mm. Now they didn't overtly make a racist comment. But just the very action of not allowing him to bring home one of his black friends uh, is something that's it's a it's an action and it's something that is called. And so I think it's taught. I think it's called. But I think the root issue, Nick, is it, it's just it's sin. It's a sinful. It's a sinful kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that it, it definitely is. You mentioned um, we take in a lot from people that we respect. We're often learning from people that we respect. And I've also been hearing this sentiment that we need strong leaders to step up in our community. And with your background in leadership, I got to know, what does it mean? One, what does it mean to be a leader in your community? And what does it mean to be a leader that is actively like pushing against this idea of racism, you know, instilling that in the community. You know, Nick, uh, uh, my, my doctoral degree is actually in leadership and uh, I love leadership. There are great examples of leaders. Every great leader has his or her own set of strengths as to what makes them a great leader. Often when we deal with leadership, we deal with tactical kinds of skills. Uh, you know, we often say this person's a great uh, motivator of people, or this person is a leader of leaders, or this person is a great visionary, or this person is very strategic. We tend to, we tend to um, limit leadership to more tactical kind of things. Man, I think... I think the most important trait and characteristic of leadership is integrity. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, The Leadership Challenge uh, by Kuzey and Posner. It's one of the best works on leadership. It's really thick, but it's called The Leadership Challenge. Uh, and that book is based on research. And what they did is, is they polled 
uh, people from around the world. And um, they put together, you know, several hundred characteristics of leadership and asked different leaders from around the world, different cultures, uh, to rate what they think is the most, what they think are the most important traits of leadership. Integrity came out to be the number one characteristic wow. of leadership. So in other words, in order to be a good leader, you have to be credible. People have to trust you. They have to believe in you. They have to respect you. It doesn't matter how tactical you are, how strategic you are, how visionary you are. If you don't have credibility, you're not a leader. You, character is more important. Um, so getting back to this race thing, um, I think I've been heard over social media just because I think I am a credible person. I think, uh, uh, and I didn't really start speaking out on race until just recently. You know, uh, I've never, I've never preached a sermon on race. I've never uh, made a Facebook or Instagram post on racism. I've never done anything like that. But, uh, but I think over the last two and a half, three months, you know, uh, this whole thing with, you know, uh, Ahmaud Arbery and, and uh, George Floyd, it just kind of ignited something in me. And I began to speak out. And I think people are hearing me and I've, and I've, and I've revealed and I've shared really hard truth. I've shared truth that some people, I think some people have been offended. I think some people have gotten angry, but for the most part, most of my listeners have been very affirming and very appreciative of what I've done. Uh, but I also think it's the type of voice you use. Uh, I have not been hateful. Uh, I have not been uh, rude or crude. Most people that have commented have t told me that uh, I've had a very calm demeanor and a very loving demeanor. So I think it's the content, but it's also the way you deliver the content. I, I was going to say, I'm, I guess people can be offended by it almost anything now but i was i was gonna say i'm shocked that people are being offended by your videos because they are being delivered with love and empathy at the forefront at least f from my own perspective and i almost believe that with topics such as race and there is that sense of sensitivity there needs to be that so taking a stand and i feel like this is also me projecting what i'm viewing of the world i feel like you know with media there's this huge desire to have polarizing perspectives very harsh i'm this way you're that way and there's there's no way we can find middle ground and that's that's the complete opposite of what i feel is necessary um but i want to follow up with this there's We've addressed that racism is a problem. We've addressed that we need to step up and be loving and empathetic in how we deliver these things. But something that I, I think I still struggle with, even having tried to take everything in that's happening, is identifying racism. Like identifying when there is a racist act occurring or if it's a matter of character differences or does that make sense like for example the other day at work these these two people that i don't know they're from a, they're a different organization whatever i don't work with them um 
but it was uh, a white guy and a black guy, and they were just like discussing like over a laptop where it was set down and i was like is this racist or are they they're friends and they actually are having a disagreement you know like am i about to step in and make it worse so if you have any advice on how to identify a racist situation and when to use your voice i think that would be very valuable well i i think first of all Nick, it's I think it's important to understand uh, uh, a key principle, and that is it is not enough to be non-racist. We have to be anti-racist. And uh, what I've been encouraging my my white friends and my black friends uh, to do is whenever you identify something that's uh, racist, to point it out. Now, obviously, as a black person who has experienced racism, I can identify it a mile away. You may not be able to. So what I've been encouraging all my black friends to do is, hey, be an influence on your white friends. Uh, just don't, uh, don't let things go. Point it out. Uh, and, uh, and if they're truly your friends, they're going to, they're going to be very appreciative of that. And so... I think it's important uh, when you're anti-racist, it's important to, to, to make sure that the moment a racist comment comes out of somebody's mouth, you nip it in the bud at that very moment. The moment you identify uh, an act of racism, you confront it. And so uh, I think where we're living now is, is that you have three tiers. You have obviously overt acts of racism. They're just very direct very in your face and then there's the covert acts of racism that are just as mean-spirited but they're a little bit more subtle uh, you can almost get away with it because there's no legal things preventing it from happening but and that's exactly what happened after the Emancipation Proclamation you know uh, after after the Emancipation Proclamation was 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 uh, given by Abraham Lincoln uh, there were still for for decades still um, acts of racism, both covert and overt, you know? And so, but that, but it's that third tier, Nick, that's tricky. And that third tier is what I call racial insensitivity. And, uh, and that's where I think, uh, people of color need to take the responsibility of educating their white friends. And then as whites become more educated, they educate their white friends. So let me just give you some examples of what I mean by that, okay? Because it's be perfect. Let me just give you some examples of what I what I what what I mean by that. Uh, and this is going to be very hard, and and probably some people listening to this may be offended by it. Um, but there are there are some well-meaning statements that uh, that I've heard white people use. Uh, I think some of them it's just ignorance and. Uh, and some, I think there's something behind it. But uh, when you hear statements like, man, you're, you're articulate. You speak very well. Hmm. And, and I've, always, I've always been a very good speaker. And uh, I've always tried to use proper grammar, proper English. I've tried to articulate. And... Uh, and I, I remember growing up, people always told me, you speak like a white guy, you know, and uh, whatever that means. Yeah, wow. 
But um, but I've had white people say, say to me, you speak so well. Well, I know what they're saying. They're saying, you don't speak like a black person. What's a black person? What does a black person sound like? Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, and my wife, she has one. Uh, you're really beautiful for a black lady. Oh, wow. Oh, oh wow. That's covert, but, uh, but it's, it's what you call a backhanded compliment. I mean, it's a compliment to my wife, but it's an insult to other black women. Well, you're, mm-hmm. you're beautiful for a black woman. Okay. Black women are beautiful just like anybody else. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Another one. Um, well, my best friend is black. Okay. Let me give Get you five stars. Card. Yeah. Let me give you five stars for that one. Okay. Um, you know, and those kind of things, it's statements like that. You have to be very careful. So I think, uh, sensitivity can be just as harmful as covert acts of, of racism because they hurt their words. They hurt to the core. Okay. So those are just a few examples, you know, uh, you know, of, 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 just racial insensitivity. I think another phrase in there that I that I believe you touched on before is I don't see color or I'm colorblind. I think that is one of probably one of my biggest pet peeves with all of this is just the fact if you say I don't see color that's for example I'm I'm a white person and I understand that like my whole identity is not that I'm a white person but to say I don't see your color it's hard to deny that I'm white you know it's hard to deny like there's an entire cultures behind you're denying an entire culture you're denying like the entire person you're not taking the whole person in it's uh see man I see, have, uh, see, I see everything about you i see that you're white i see that you're handsome i see that you got a nice smile i mean just i have to put it out there man you know i appreciate that <laughs> of what anyone thinks about you i think you're no, no, i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding no I, I i i did touch on that and i was on another podcast the other day where we dealt with that first of all if somebody says they don't see color they're lying mm-hmm. okay um secondly if they say if they have to say they don't see color, I wonder what they're covering up. But number three, as I mentioned in the video, I want people to see color. Exactly. Because we live in America that is a hodgepodge, a salad bowl of multiple cultures. And man, and you heard my, one of my videos where I kind of went through some of the black history stuff, uh, some of the, 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 the black Americans that, um, that were inventors and scientists and doctors and creators. The way we came to America, uh, we were not voluntary uh, migrants. I mean, we were captured and shipped over here and sold into slavery. That's the way we came to America. But, you know, throughout the years, there have been some amazing contributions. And when you look at the black culture and when you look at the Hispanic culture and you look at European culture and, and you look at Asian culture and you look at this blend here in America, every culture makes America what it is. And so we don't want you to not see our color. We don't want you to be colorblind. 
we want you to see our color and recognize our history and our heritage and the contribution that we that we bring to this this great nation of ours i agree you touched on something that i am this is some this is another thing i'm giving you all of my tough questions that i've been turning on inside of my own noggin bring it baby bring it it's 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 slavery and it's generate i don't know if generational sin would be the best word but america has these past sins that have been we're still seeing the ripple effects from and how do we as a nation move forward from sins one two three generations ago so what you're referring to some people would refer to as a generational curse um and I don't know if that's the appropriate term. What I like to, what I, the way I look at it is, is I call it sociological patterns is what I call it. So basically what I mean by that is we are still seeing, even in 2020, we're still seeing effects and impacts of the legacy of slavery. Even though it's been abolished, even though it's 150 years in our past, uh, we are still seeing the impact of it. Okay. So basically, you know, you had the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863. And then you had um, the 13th Amendment, you know, and, um, and then you had the, the Juneteenth, you know, uh, in 1865, where, you know, the Union uh, generals went to Texas and to inform the Texans that they were free because they were like on the, the border of the slave states. And so they didn't know that two years ago that they were they were free. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the, the post-emancipation days, and it didn't really get better for black people uh, because all of a sudden, you know, they were free, but they had no education. They could barely speak. The only skills they had was what they had learned on the plantations. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them had to do what was called sharecropping. And so they had to work with people that were at one time either their masters or somebody else's masters. So they had to sharecrop and give a portion of their, uh, you know, their proceeds back to the master. Uh, and so in some ways they were still enslaved. Um, and they couldn't read, they couldn't write. And, and one of the things that white people did in that, uh, post civil war era, uh, era was they didn't want black people to get educated because education was power, you know? So they did everything they could, even though black people were free, they did everything they could to keep black people down. Okay. And then you had the Jim Crow stuff and then, um, all the way up until 1964, uh, even after the Civil Rights Act, there was still, still uh, heavy racial tension in America. And then from 1964 until this current time, uh, we are still seeing some of the impact and the effects of the legacy of slavery. I've also been hearing our nation need, needs healing, which I agree with. I agree that our nation is almost in an outcry at this point with how much tension there is 
the thing that I am trying to figure out how to direct my focus on is I know our nation needs healing. I don't know where they need to be, where, where we need to be healed. If that makes sense. Like the, the specifics of when do we know we're healed? When do we know equality is finally across the board? Cause like, as, as we stated, it's this, this thing that's, from generations ago that still has these consequences and we still can throw laws at it, but that doesn't change man's heart. And uh, the complexity of it is, is really, it's quite overwhelming. So where does our nation need the most healing right now? In terms of uh, racism or in, in general, terms, in terms of racism? racism. So Nick here, I'm going to say something that may sound a little uh, pessimistic but it's not pessimism, it's reality. I don't think there will ever be complete healing. Because hmm. I think we live in a fallen world. Each of us has a sinful nature. I don't, I don't anticipate there to be complete healing. What I and others would like to see is for it to get better. So what we want to see is we want to see that needle move and we want to see that needle continue to move. That's progress. Uh, until Jesus comes back, I don't think we're going to ever see complete healing. It's Again, racism is a sin. It's a matter of the heart. And when you look at other sins, the other sins aren't going to go away, right? Yeah. So racism is not going to go away. So there's the private sins and there are social sins. Neither is going to go away until Jesus comes back. But uh, as a believer, if I could just go theological for just a moment, as an individual believer in Jesus Christ, there's this, there's this uh, thing that we call sanctification. It means that I've been saved, uh, but I'm also, I'm continuing to be saved. Uh, it means that I'm constantly being transformed into the image of Christ. I will never be perfect in this life, but but I should be becoming more and more like Jesus in my daily life, uh, constantly being transformed. And I think the same thing is true in human society. It'll never be perfect, but we need to keep that needle moving in the right direction. Okay. So I wanted to say that just from the outset, I don't think there's going to ever be complete healing. We just need to see progress. We need to see things growing better. Uh, I think it has to start with the church, Nick. Mm. I think we have the answer. Um, number one, there's the principle of love. You know, Jesus said by this, everyone will know that you are my, are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, uh, if you were to Google famous statements by Dr. Martin Luther King, this one would come up. The most segregated hour is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Hmm. segregation is still in the church. Now, there are sociologists who will say, well, it's because of, you know, cultural differences and black people like to worship this way and white people like to worship that way and Asians like to worship this way and Hispanics like to worship this way. And I get that. There are cultural distinctives. But I also think that a big part of that is um, I don't think that we value each other. I think we value sometimes our own culture over mm -hmm. 
the Christian culture. But I, I think it has to start with the church. And I believe that, uh, you know, we can't really make the world love. But if you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are obligated to love each other. And I think as we demonstrate love for one another, the world will see that and that'll, that'll be a witness. And then we have the impact of loving each other. Uh, I don't think racial reconciliation is going to come through preaching. And I don't think it's going to come through even a podcast like this. I think a podcast like this is going to educate people. It's going to raise an awareness of the issue. But I think it's going to come from people like you and I just demonstrating that we love each other. I think the church has to do that. Um, but I also think that uh, the church has to come together and have open discussions about this. Um, I, I don't think we can sweep this under the carpet any longer. We've got to have a conversation, an honest conversation in a, in a safe environment, but also in a peaceful, respectful environment. Um, I think whites need to sit down and they need to listen to the, to the stories of black people and black people need to listen to, uh, the concerns of white people and we collaborate. And I think the church needs to lead out in that. And then if the church can lead out in this, then we can see it in all the other institutions of, of society, but it's got to start with the church. Do you have any thoughts or ideas of why the church I've seen two two responses from churches so far, like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. This race issue is big, and we're, uh, we're just not going to talk about it. And then I've seen other churches that are like, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to go all in. Like, this is something that needs to be addressed. For the churches that are more timid to get into the conversation of race, do you have any inclination of why that might be? Is there something that's part of the Christian culture that is preventing something like that? I think it's two things. I think, number one, uh, I think a lot of Christians and a lot of churches simply don't know what to do, which is why it's important to sit down with your black Christian friends and your black pastors and your black Christian leaders and have a conversation, get educated, get ideas on what you can do in your church. Uh, uh, and, 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 and by the way, I'm, a, you know, I'm an executive pastor of a predominantly Anglo church. And so uh, I have kind of a natural venue, if you will, for having these kind of conversations. Um, so I think that's important. Uh, so I think a part of it is they don't know what to do, Nick. But I think the other part of it, of it is, is I think some churches, they just choose to stay away from it because it's controversial. And I don't know what to say to a pastor that holds that position or a church that holds that position. because. Uh, it's not just a, it's not just a uh, social issue. It's a spiritual issue. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the gospels, you know, Jesus was all about, you know, social justice and equality. I don't see how you can ignore it. Uh, but also it, it comes down to the gospel. And uh, you probably heard me deal with this in one of my videos, but you know, the gospel, there's a vertical component and there's a horizontal component. The vertical component is, you know, uh, men and women being reconciled to God. And then once you're reconciled to God, there's that horizontal component and there's mm -hmm. reconciliation uh, relationally. That's the gospel. So 
I don't see how a church can ignore the racial issue if you take the gospel seriously, because the gospel is all about reconciliation. And I think that stems into Christians as well. And uh, John was on a previous episode, and I think he said this well, and I kind of want to expand on the idea that we often hide behind the loving Jesus, you know, when things are tough. But really, I don't... it, me included. This is 100% me. Me confessing this as well. I don't know if I have the best, like, maybe representation of like what Jesus looks like standing firm against evil. Do you know what I mean? Like, Jesus is this, the symbol of love. He is love, and expressing that into uh, complex issues such as race, there still needs to be that strength there, though. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. Hey, you should you should probably love people that don't look like you. It's like we gotta love people that don't look like us. Do you have any maybe practical tips on how to stand against injustices with the strength of Jesus? I think I think uh, one of the things that I've tried to do in this time, Nick, is to state the truth in love and. Uh, and I have, I have not held back at all in, uh, you know, addressing racism. I mean, I have not been timid at all, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I, but you want to make sure that you're not political. You want to make sure that it's not driven by hatred. You want to make sure that you come across the right way. Um, uh, but I think it's important. I think it's important to be very truthful. I think people appreciate that. And they may not agree with you necessarily. And, and it's been incredible. Uh, uh, some of the responses I've gotten from some of my friends on the videos that I've done, many of those responses have come through private messages or text saying, you know, Reggie, I don't really agree with that, but I want to hear more as to mm. why you feel that way. And after a conversation... A, they're either appreciative of my explanation, and or B, I have actually convinced people that I was right in what I was saying. And so I think if you come across the right way, you're going to be more inviting. You're going to, people who struggle with this issue, they're going to go, hmm, you know, I really, I like the way Nick said that. I'm not sure I agree with it. I struggle with it. But let me give the, let me give that guy a call. Let's, uh, let's sit down and talk about that, you know. So I think if you're inviting, you're going to get that opportunity. Just stating hard truth is not going to turn most people off. Some, you will. Most people are not going to be turned off by hard truth. What they are going to be turned off about is your attitude and your demeanor and your presentation. And I'm going to tell you, man, probably 95% of the people I've heard from, it's been been well-received, respectable, uh, appreciative. Uh, So that's how I would answer that. You touching on how it was well-received, I think, is telling for people that may be too afraid to speak out. And I think the having the idea of it being an invitation is also good because, for one, if somebody does disagree with any point that you or I have, I have much more respect for somebody that's saying, I disagree with that, but I want to talk about it or at least 
because that's that's kind of the whole point right is building this discussion where like a, a lot of love and relationships it comes from understanding you know and i think as the ignorance part of this of race is like i don't have a complete understanding that's why i, I dislike this this people group i don't have a full understanding of what it is and therefore that's why i'm going to continue to be this way so that that discussion and how you deliver that is so crucial speaking spiritually i'm curious on how you see how you see the devil in all of this racial tension what is the devil's agenda during all of this well you know uh without being too mystical <laughs> you know when you look at scripture uh number one there are scriptures like ephesians 2 2 and john 12 and second corinthians 1 where the devil is described as the prince of the power of the air the god of this age little g and what that means is, is that he is the ruler of the evil system of the world. Now, God is sovereign. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. But there's this sinful, evil piece of our existence, our society, that Satan is, he's the, he's the, he's the master of. He controls the evil domain. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6. I think, number one, I think Satan wants to divide Christians. And I've been amazed at the number of Christians who have just been divided over this whole racism, uh, race issue. I think, number one, he wants to, I think he wants to, to, to divide Christians. And then, number two, obviously, he wants to uh, bring division and chaos in the world in general. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he definitely has an agenda uh, in all of this. Yeah, I feel like I'm seeing... That is why one of the things the church has to do, and, 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 and I, I've been telling people that, you know, the church has to pray, but it's got to do more than pray. It has to act, okay? I mean, when you say we're going to pray about this, that's great, but that's only half of what needs to happen uh, because being anti-racist means you have to pray, but you have to act. But getting to the spiritual component, Nick, I think it's that's why we have to pray because one of the one of the resources one of the tools we have in our warfare against spiritual darkness is prayer. So the church definitely has to pray against what's what's going on in society. But then again, we have to act. I mean, it's the same as missions, right? You know, our churches, man, we can sit here in America all day long and pray for lost people in Africa and India, Cambodia, you know, other parts of the world. But after we pray, got to go. Yeah. Same, same as with racism. We got to pray, and then we got to, we have to act. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, it's, honestly, it's, it's tough um, trying to look at these circumstances, and I feel like I can almost see how the devil is trying to split, split, us apart and i'm not talking about us as just christians i'm talking about the nation as a whole he's trying to divide and destroy any sort of community that was you know fruitful in any sense um so now on the flip side 
I want to see how do you see God in the midst of all of this? Because I would imagine they're both working at the same time. Mm-hmm. What I what I am seeing in terms of, so first of all, I believe that God is at work in every situation. I think God is at work in our world. Uh, I know a lot of Christians right now who are discouraged because when you look at COVID-19, you look at the the racial tension Mm -hmm. and, and man, I mean, there's so much other stuff going on in the world that most people are not aware of just because it's been kind of placed on the back burner of the racial tension and COVID-19. But there's a lot of discouraging stuff. And there are some Christians that are very, very, very discouraged right now. Uh, What I believe is God is sovereign in spite of what's going on. Uh, I believe he's going to get the glory in spite of what's going on. But I also believe that he's at work because I think for years, racial tension has been... um, it's been pronounced, it's been profound, but it's been somewhat hidden. And I think God is using this to bring this to the forefront to expose not only racial injustice, but all aspects of inequality. So I, what I see God doing is, is that he's, I think he's allowing this thing to be surfaced because you and I both know that because God is sovereign, I mean, he could just kind of snap his finger and just bring healing. But that's not the way God always works. I mean, again, I keep coming back to the fact that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world and we live in a world of suffering. We live in a world that has evil. We live in a world that has sin. And so all of that kind of stuff, it happens not so much in the perfect will of God. It happens in the permissive will of God. There are things that God permits and allows. And maybe God has allowed this race thing to to, to rise to the level that it has to expose uh, injustice and, and inequality so that the church and other institutions will begin to address it. Does that make sense? It does. And I can only hope that's the reason. I think there's always going to be a why, do, why does bad things happen in the world kind of mentality. But I, I, I think... If anything, I think it's an undeniable truth that reform can always be had. And as you're saying, like, this healing, you know, may go on forever. And with that point, like, there should be no point in time where we say, I don't think we can improve on this. You know, "Ah, we're we're probably not. (laughs) We're probably fine in this area. Um. So let me but, let me let me speak to that for just a minute, then. So so, I know I know that uh, most Christians would love to see a a renewal, a spiritual renewal that's nationwide, and mm-hmm. and I know that uh, we would like to see a a revival that's worldwide, and. There are groups that have been praying for this for years. And, of course, if you know church history, you know that there have been these movements of God that were just incredible, you know, all the great revivals in history. And I think every time there is a, a national crisis or a worldwide crisis, a global crisis, Christians begin to pray, God, bring that revival. 
bring that renewal that we've been praying about. So I want to say this. I want to speak to the to the individual. So as an individual Christian, you can look at what's going on, and I call it the three Ds. Uh, you can let it define you, you can let it destroy you, or you can let it develop you. So as an individual Christian, I cannot control COVID-19. Uh, I have I, I can use my little world, my part of the world, and try to influence uh, the right perspective on racism, but I'm not going to change racism nationally. I don't have that kind of platform. I don't have that kind of influence, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I have to be concerned about is what is God doing in me? How does God want me to grow during this time? And, and, and Nick, frankly, man, this has been a difficult time for everybody. I mean, Absolutely. it's been very disappointing. It's been very depressing for all of us. And and I would be lying if I told you, man, that this hasn't had any impact on me. It has impacted me. And I think oh, anybody yeah. who says it has, hasn't, they're lying, you know? Yeah. But I would hope that I am not allowing it to define me. It's not going to destroy me. I'm going to let God use it to develop. So I think on an individual basis, that's why we have to look at it. Also, there's a local basis. So I'm going to be very hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can see kind of a national reconciliation between the races, but the reality of it is we may not. So maybe there are going to be pockets where we see improvements. And maybe those pockets are not places that you and I are aware of, but hopefully there will be places in this nation where uh, there is race reconciliation. Maybe that's Atlanta. Maybe that's Boston. Uh, You know, maybe that's Detroit. We don't know. Maybe it's a small town in Tennessee. Uh, But hopefully if we don't see that global or that, that national uh, reconciliation between the races, there'll be these little small pockets. So maybe God's going to be doing things that you and I don't see. Uh, in this area of racism. Yeah, that's, oof. That's always tough, too. It's like I had this incident. I'll, I'll dive into a little story. I had this incident one time where uh, this lady, I was in San Francisco for a conference, and this lady on the street came up to me, and she said, um, like, something's wrong with my eyes. Something's wrong with my eyes. And I was like, oh, man, I need to pray for this lady. Like, this is this is going down all right. Um, and so I prayed for her and I was like praying for healing because I felt compelled, like, you know, when you feel you need to pray something specific, I felt that way. And I usually don't, I'm not saying like, I'm not here saying that God is always talking to me. I rarely, rarely feel that way. But I was like, oh man, I feel compelled to like pray for healing for this woman. I prayed for healing for her. Nothing happened. She turned the corner and I never saw again. But she was also saying she needed some copay to be paid, which I didn't have any money on me at the time. But my mindset now is maybe I prayed that prayer and she turned that corner and somebody gave her copay to get that healing. You know, that's the faith that I have to have to say, God told me to do my part in this. And I have to have enough faith to say, okay, God's God did. God did what he was desiring in that situation. And I think what you're saying here, because honestly, I'll, I'll be super honest. I was really, really discouraged for a long time after I prayed for that woman. Because wow. I was like, oh, why, why, didn't, why didn't she get healed? You know, you told me to pray for healing for her X, Y, and Z. And I think that's what you're saying here. Like with our nation, 
you know, we're praying and we're going to do our part, but we have to have faith that God is orchestrating it behind the scenes as well. So I agree. You said that so well. My next question for you is we're talking about solutions now with our nation and I know you haven't covered the institutional solutions, but I, I want to know what are individual solutions we can try to implement to prevent racism. And then what do you see as institutional solutions? Cause that's where it gets dicey for me too. Cause I'm not quite sure. So on the individual level, uh, I, let me just say three things. Number one, I think it's important for each of us to examine our own hearts. Um, one of my college friends, I have not seen her, I haven't seen her in 30 years. She sent me a text this morning saying that she wants to have a FaceTime conversation this week because she's struggling with this because she's listened to all three of my videos and she's, um, she's wrestling with some issues. And what she said to me is, is this has been a serious time of reflection and evaluation for her. So she wants to have that conversation. Nick, I think, first of all, it's important for us to all search and examine our hearts, kind of see where we are in this. Secondly, um, I think it's important for um, all of my white friends to educate themselves. Uh, do as much reading as you can on, you know, black culture, black history, black heritage. Do as much as you can. That'll give you an understanding uh, of what's going on. And then number three, um, I think it's important to start building relationships with people um, of other other cultures. Now, that's a little dicey and tricky because you don't want it to be one of those things that, okay, I, ch I can check that off the box. Uh, I made friends with Reggie, so I got my one black friend. Now I need to go, <laughs> for, my, need to go for my one Hispanic friend. I need to go for my one Asian friend. It, it, it has to be authentic. And it has to be organic. It can't be, you know, uh, fake uh, because we pick up on that very, very easily. You know, uh, nobody wants to be a quota. Nobody wants to be uh, a guilt appeaser for somebody. We want to know that it's authentic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things that I would encourage my white friends to do is uh, search your heart, examine your heart, uh, do as much as you can to educate yourself, and then. Uh, start building some relationships uh, because you're going to glean as much learning from those stories and those experiences as you are, as you're reading things. Institutionally, that's a biggie. Yeah, uh, so let me just start at a, at a, at a high level and then, uh, you know, and then you can just take this and ask whatever questions you want to ask. Uh, so I've talked a little bit about the church. So let's just talk about institutions in general. Because uh, I think there is some racism uh, in the church. Uh, I do think there is racism in the church. I, I really do. I think there are racist Christians. Um, that kind of sounds oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, oxymoron. But I think there are Christians that struggle with it, you know. Um, so let's move away from that and let's just talk about some of the other institutions. I think, first of all, Nick, uh, there, there, there is legislation that uh, prevents 
again, a lot of the overt acts of racism in uh, a lot of the social institutions. Now, legislation doesn't solve racism because racism has two components. It has the heart issue, that's what I call prejudice, and then there is the action aspect of it, discrimination. Legislation can resolve some of the the actionary kind of things. You know, there are certain things that you just can't do in society. There are certain uh, things that employers can't do because it's discrimination. So there are protections legally, but legislation does not change the human heart. Okay. I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are a ton of people out there that are racist by heart, but they can't demonstrate it in some ways because legislation would not allow them to do it. Okay. So what I think institutionally, a couple things that needs to happen. Number one, uh, I think every institution, every organization, they need to uh, take a look at their policies and their practices and see if there are racist elements to it. Now, they don't have to worry about the, the legal stuff. The legal stuff is taken care of for them. I mean, being here in the state of California, the state of California has some of the tightest discrimination laws in the nation. Most institutions, they have to comply with those. What I'm talking about are those things that are not regulated uh, legally. So take a look at your practices, take a look at your policies and see if there's anything that could be perceived. Because, you know, racism, there's a reality aspect and there's a perception aspect. And so if you're working for an organization as a black person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person, and even though the employer does not mean to be racist, if people of color, if they perceive that organization to be racist, then that has to be addressed. So take a look at your policies and your practices. And then this is the biggie. I think every institution needs to develop uh, uh, a very, very robust um, racial diversity, cultural diversity program. Because what often offends people of color are things that are done out of ignorance, things that are said out of ignorance. And uh, I've been on a number of mission trips, and one of the things that, whether I've led the mission trip or I'm just one of, uh, one of the partners on a mission trip, is we go through uh, cultural training. Because things that we say to each other here in America, it might be offensive to someone in Indonesia. Yep. Well, man, the world has come to America. The world has come to California. I mean, there are so many cultures here in California, and we don't understand each other fully. But yet we're working together in the workplace and we're living together in the neighborhoods and we're involved in the community through various organizations. And there's this diversity and we see each other and we have conversations, but we don't really know each other. And so I think, I think racial diversity and cultural diversity uh, has to be prominent in every organization and every institution. I agree. Can you hear the passion in my voice? Can you hear the passion? Yeah, I love it. We got one final, final topic to cover. Um, and it's forgiveness. And I'm curious on your thoughts on 
because because racism is so deep, because it's so involved, and because it's so personal. How do we forgive? I mean, pl- plain and simple. How do we how do we forgive, and how do we not become callous toward other people groups? Nick, uh, I'm going to borrow something from a sermon that I preached a few years ago, if I can do that. Can I do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Forgiveness is misconstrued. Forgiveness is step one on a ladder. So here's the way, here's the ladder. You know, if you take a ladder, um, I mean, a ladder has so many steps, right? So the way I look at it is uh, the first few steps in the ladder of forgiveness uh, is what I call forgiveness, what you call forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't solve the issue. Forgiveness is a starting point. And uh, forgiveness is a decision that you're not going to hold a grudge that you're not going to retaliate, that you're not going to hold an offense against a person. So if you were to take a literal ladder, I would say the first two to three steps would be forgiveness, okay? And then the next few steps is what I would call reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Reconciliation is coming together. It's listening to each other. It's being empathetic. It's hearing Nick's story and me not trying to defend my perspective. And it's Nick hearing my story and Nick not arguing with me, but we're truly listening to each other, not to find points to argue, but to understand each other and then to empathize with each other. So there's forgiveness, first three or four steps. And then there's reconciliation. And reconciliation is still not the, it's still not the solution. There's restoration. And restoration comes after we have forgiven each other and we've reconciled, and we understand each other. That's where restoration takes place. Man, we got a long way to go because I don't even know if we have mastered forgiveness yet. There's a lot of anger out there. Mm -hmm. So we got to get to a point where we just say, okay, we we got to get past the hurts, but we got to see action though. There has to be action because have you ever ever had a, a friend or acquaintance who offended you? Oh, yeah. You had a fallout. That person comes back to you and says, oh, Nick, man, I'm so sorry. I, I, man, please forgive me. And they come across sincere and they maybe were sincere. You forgive that person. And then two months later, they do the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. That cannot happen. That cannot happen in race reconciliation. Because... There's been a lot of trust that has been lost. And as you begin to gain trust, you can't afford to lose it. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to lose it. Man, we got a lot of work to do. I mean, again, I'm just going to get, I'm going to be just realistic. We have a lot of work to do. So there's forgiveness. I'm not going to hold the grudges. We're going to apologize. We're going to forgive each other. We're going to reconcile by listening and being empathetic. And then there's restoration. And I thank God. Is on all the different steps of that ladder, you know? And again, I don't think the world can do this. Christians have to do this. We have to forgive each other. We have to work towards reconciliation. We have to work towards restoration. 
I think we have to be the leaders in this. We have to be at the forefront for sure. Yeah. And especially as you, you were saying about uh, leadership takes integrity. That's the number one thing. We, we should be trying to be n- leaders in integrity. I mean, it, granted the fact that we can say we're imperfect and the, our whole relationship is based on grace with God, but we have to be at the forefront of all of this. Absolutely. I agree. Dr. Thomas, oh my gosh. Thank you for being on the show. This has been fantastic. You were so patient with me. I love getting to ask all the questions. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it. And thanks for inviting me to do this. And uh, yeah, this was a great, great conversation. And, uh, and you know, Nick, it's conversations like this that I think that's, that we need to be having. Uh, one-on-one, uh, you know, group listening sessions. Uh, you asked some really good questions and it gave me the opportunity to share some hard truth, you know, and uh, I don't know how broad this is going to be delivered, but hopefully it'll help someone. That's my prayer. It helped me. So at least you'll you'll have some, some <laughs> surefire feedback right now. Great. Do- Dr. Thomas, where can we find you on the Internet? Where can we keep up with you? Um, I am uh, I'm on Facebook. So that's Reggie Thomas. I'm also on Instagram, Regman308. And uh, I don't do Twitter, uh, but I do do Instagram and uh, uh, Facebook. I'm going to say go find them on Facebook. Watch all of the videos, especially I think right now if you're concerned about the state of the world, you did a video on worrying, and then you also did a video on how to take care of yourself. I think you covered a lot of great things in those videos, so please, if you're listening, Go find Dr. Thomas on Facebook and watch those videos. Thanks for being on the show. Great being with you. Bye. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Next week on the podcast, Joshua White, him and Nick are going to discuss cancel culture, false sexual assault accusations, and how Nick almost drove a car off a cliff. New for new. new, Today, Junior. New uploads every Friday at 6 a.m. So tune in at 6 a.m. Get yourself a coffee, a donut, a bagel, protein drink, whatever you want. Listen to the episode. And the real reason you're still here, how does the barber cut the moon's hair? Eclipse it. (laughs) See you guys next week.